Hello, and welcome to Sherlock, from Adler to Amberley. An attempt to analyse all 56 of the Sherlock Holmes short stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In order. Starting with the first story, A Scandal in Bohemia, featuring the celebrated adventuress Irene Adler, and finishing with the final story of the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, The Retired Cullerman, where Holmes and Watson accept the case from Mr Josiah Amberley. Hence, from Adler to Amberley. My name is Carl Kopak, and I'll be presenting this irregular series along with a special guest as we attempt to assess the value of each tale of the canon. Okay, a plot recap then of the Red-Headed League. Holmes and Watson are joined at 221B Baker Street by Mr Jabers Wilson. Wilson is a pawnbroker in Farringdon Street and he thinks he's been the victim of a cruel practical joke and he can't make head and a tail of it. He has an assistant working with him um, called Vincent Spaulding who comes in to, to see him one day and says that there's an opening on the Red-Headed League. Now, Jabez Wilson has very, very bright red hair. And, of course, Wilson has no idea whatsoever what the Red-Headed League is. It turns out that it is a opening for a league of redheads only um, and was donated by some Jezemiah Hopkins or other um, who wanted to uh, fund people with extraordinary colour of red hair and um, they get £4 a week for very, very nominal fees. Now, £4 a week is about 430 quid a week, according to Wikipedia, um, so it's worth doing. So he goes along to um, the officers of the Red-Headed League and is chosen immediately. They give him his £4, and his sole duty is to copy out the entries of the Encyclopedia Britannica. He does that for about eight weeks or so, and then one day he goes there and there's a sign there just saying the Red-Headed League is disbanded. What's happened to his £4 a week? What the hell was this Red-Headed League thing about? So he goes to see Holmes. Holmes finds it very, very amusing. Um, and he asks for a description of Vincent Spaulding because he suspects him straight away. He then visits the shop without Wilson. Um, and he meets him, has a good look at his trousers, as you do. And then taps on the pavement outside the shop. Um, and then he's quite happy. He's then solved the case. What happens then is later he goes with a, um, a Scotland Yarder and a Mr Merriweather from the bank um, because he's worked out that the reason Spaulding wanted to get him into the Red Headed League and get him to do all this stupid work was so he could be in the basement on his own or with his colleagues, I should say, uh, where he would um, dig a tunnel under the shop and into the bank next door. Vincent Spaulding is a man called John Clay, and at the end of the story, Holmes says that John Clay is one of the most, probably one of the most brightest criminals he's ever known, and it's a shame in many ways that he turned to crime. The Red-Headed League. My guest this week to discuss the Red-Headed League is Trevor Bond. Trevor has spoken at conferences on the subject ranging from Jack the Ripper to the shootings in Tunbridge Wells in addition to the Flanetley Literary Festival and the UK National Archives Victorian Crime Event in 2016, 
In that year, he also authored the A to Z of Victorian Crime with Neil Bell, Kate Clark and Mark Ripper. He runs a regular London walking tours company called Chronicles Tours, and he also works as an intensive care nurse. We're going to be discussing the Red-Headed League um, this week, Trevor, but uh, before we start, I've got to ask, how did you get into Sherlock? I got into Sherlock sort of relatively young, I suppose, although I suspect most of us probably around a similar age if you then end up growing up doing podcasts about it on a Sunday morning. But uh, yeah, I was quite a, quite a sort of bookish child and we moved when I was about eight or nine and I was never <clears throat> a child who was sort of surrounded by friends, Hope or me. Um, I was sort of quite a you know, typical only child, I suppose, quite happy with my own company. And uh, yeah, my parents had a copy of the collected short stories and I just started sort of after we moved I was just sort of sitting in the house a lot and I started finding interesting things on the bookshelves so I came across the shorts I read all the short stories quite a while before I then read the novels even though obviously there's the couple that come before so I, I definitely came to the short stories first um, and actually that was around the same time it's around the same period as well that I also came across at the local library a, a copy of a um, 1987, so one of that that um, influx of just pre-centenary uh, Jack the Ripper books that hadn't been taken out of the library for a few years and was going to be chucked out. So Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper both enter my life around the same time, really, um, albeit at least in one case perhaps younger than was ideally healthy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's you, you must have the... Um... Uh, the, the same fascination problem with, with uh, as I do when I'm talking to people um, who I don't know and say, what, what do you do? Well, you know, I, I write about this and this and this. And I also write about Jack the Ripper. And um, I can see them taking half a step back with a, with a slightly <laughs> more rickish smile. Okay, don't don't make eye contact. Don't do any of that. So you, you also do Ripper He's one tours. of those. Yeah, he's one of those. Uh, I, I used to... Sorry, Yeah, I used to do Ripper tours. Um, so I did rip tours for a couple of years for Richard Jones's company. That yep. was always part of my plan to do my own tours eventually. So what actually happened was a few years ago, I decided to do that. I actually got in touch with Richard Jones because I knew Richard a bit through, you know, speaking of various conferences um, that he was at over the years. And I got in touch with him and I just said to him, look, I'm thinking of doing this. I actually sent him a really long message saying, I promise you I'm not going to be any kind of competition to you. I don't want to tread on any toes, but, you know, if you've got any advice for me, sort of from an admin perspective more than anything, and because he's a lovely, generous man, uh, he came back and said, yeah, any help you need, but also you know your stuff about Jack the Ripper. I've got no comp uh, no doubts about that. So if you want to do some Ripper tours for us for a while and get a bit of experience in guiding a group, then go ahead. So I did tours, Ripper tours for him, sort of on a weekly basis, a couple of weeks for about 18 months, two years. And now I do, still do the odd Ripper tour if I get it as a request for a private tour. Um, I did one about a year ago with the great-grandnephew of Dacre Stoker. So between, uh, of Bram Stoker, sorry, the, uh, Dacre Stoker, the great-grandnephew. Um, and we went around and did a, a joint tour of Dracula meets Jack the Ripper. So that was, that was quite fun, but... Uh, on the whole, I've gone in a slightly different direction to the tours now, to the uh, the Ripper tours. But yeah, do, do, do you do anything Sherlock related in uh, for Chronicles tours? 
The only Sherlock-related one I do, uh, there's one stop on one tour, um, which is the pub. So oh. on my yeah, on my Westminster tour, we stop outside the Sherlock Holmes pub, and which is quite good because I'm certainly not teaching you anything new here, Carl, and probably not any of our listeners either. But but what's quite interesting about the Sherlock Holmes pub is that although yes, it is a, a tourist trap that with the fake study upstairs, um, where I once got asked by someone, is it really his study? But we'll leave that up where it is. Uh, but yeah, although it's a bit of a tourist trap, I think it went up in the 1970s, it became the Sherlock Holmes uh, pub, but it was previously the Northumberland Hotel. So it is. it does feature in one of the stories that you'll later come on to, the, uh, the adventure of the Noble Bachelor. So I do a little stop there. But the main, actually, the main thing I talk about there is Conan Doyle. That's the point of that stop, really, because I talk about his interest in you know, psychic phenomena um, and sort of the occult as such, um, which I always find quite fascinating because someone who's most famous for creating the ultimate reason yeah. scientific method person was himself, you know, tricked by girls taking photographs of fairies in their garden so i always find that quite interesting and the big seance that they had after he died in the albert hall so so that's the only sherlock content at the moment yeah it's, it's quite difficult though isn't it because although um there's plenty to be dotted around london that there isn't sort of apart from baker street that there isn't really one place where he goes a lot i mean no, that's it's, right like the, like the diogenes club maybe that's about it really on palm Isle. <laughs> Um, and even then, I think that's only that's only in the Greek interpreter. So I don't think there's anything else. Um, it's not a contained area like the Ripper. Oh. Uh, no, and, and I think you'd struggle. And we're going to be talking about London anyway, which we're both fascinated with um, when, when we move on to uh, the Redheaded League. Because I've been trying to work out where his shop is, uh, which is difficult because uh, one of the places is fictional. But he, but he, he mentions other places around it, and it's it's very strange the way he does it. Um, before, well, the main question um, I have to ask about the Redheaded League is, and I know the answer to this because it's uh, it's officially number two in the best his best ever stories that he gave it anyway. Arthur Conan Doyle gave it. Mm. Did you like it? I loved it. It's. I was thinking the other day, as I say, when I first came to the stories, I literally just read cover to cover this collected edition. I haven't got it anymore, unfortunately. I've obviously got a, obviously got another one, um, and so. I must have read Scandal in Bohemia first. Yeah. But Redheaded League is the one that always sticks in my head as if it was, although I know it's not true, it almost feels like the first home story I read is, is the first one that really grabbed me. And I thought, oh, there's something going on here. Well, it's also the first one he wins. And it's, it's yes. also the first one where he, um, uh, he solves it before uh, picking up the criminals, just a piece of admin at the end of the day. He knows exactly what's going on once he's seen um, Vincent Spaulding's trousers. He's got yes, his... absolutely. Yeah, yes. He even knows who the criminal is before he... Uh, just well, he knows who the criminal is before they leave Baker Street, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I like those stories where, where Paul Watson, there's a whole section... Um, I, I'm assuming everyone's read the story, by the way. Um, where there's a whole section where they're waiting in the vaults and, and Watson's like slightly scared, he doesn't know what's going on and, and Sherlock's just like waiting for a friend to turn up. Yes, <laughs> really yes. interesting. Yeah, we're just going to do this now. Yeah, he's the most what the fourth, third or fourth bravest man in London, and uh, yeah, we're just going to go to him now. But he doesn't bother telling anyone 
whatsoever. No, no, I could deal with this. Yeah. You're just the necessary people. And, and, and also, I don't quite see the point why... I would, we're jumping all around here, but this is going to happen. Um, why does he bring Mr. Merriweather with him? I suppose he, he brings him with us for the story to say, yes, look, you know, he knows the bank. He, I think he says he's our guide to the underworld or something. Um, but uh, Mr. Merriweather's just basically in there just for comic purposes about him moaning he didn't get his <laughs> wished for the first time. Pretty much, yeah. Yes. I, uh, yeah, I, I suppose there's two ways you could look at that. If, as, a, as a writer, you could look at that and say that realistically he's probably just there for a little bit of exposition. Yeah. Um, so Holmes can say, they've got this French gold, that's what's in the vault. Um, yeah. If you want to look at it from a more character point of view, I think Holmes quite likes an audience. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do like the way he does like a bit of drama. I, I really like that, particularly if he's, if he's just, and I know the dates are all, all skewed, but um, particularly in, in the first day, because he loses one, they, they, re they really let, let him have his, um, you know, he, he gets the three-pipe problem reference in. Uh, yes. Conan Doyle really goes to town on the on the old drama of, uh, um, you know, the, the big thing at the end, the, 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 the John Clay saying, you know, take your hands off me, I'm the, the I have royalty in my blood, all that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, I, I think the Redhead League is a fascinating story because, as, as I'll come to during the season, he, he basically repeats it twice. Mm. So, Thought Brokers Clark is about um, getting a man out of the way so they can rob a bank on a Saturday. And send three, him to Birmingham. Uh, yeah, send him to Birmingham. And the Three Garadebs is getting a, a harmless old man um, out of his, his um, house so they can find a coining machine in the cellar by a very, very elaborate means. And what's funny about that for me is I'm fine with that. I like the fact he's recycled it because it's such a good story that I don't mind reading it again with different names. But, but this is the, obviously, it's the first one. And it's the most ingenious, um, the, the whole redhead leak of Duncan Ross with, with his red hair. Um, so it, it starts obviously with with, uh, with Wilson visiting them in um, in C two one B, and Sherlock goes straight into deductions. Straight, yes. Straight into the um, oh you're from China you've done manual work you've written a great deal lately. You're um, amazing. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, the, yeah, and, the, and uh, with, with the company you're incredible, Holmes. How do you do it? And um, I like the fact in this one that he's in a good mood. Oh, well, certainly a much better mood than at the start of the uh, of Scandinavia, yes. <laughs> yeah, when he, he doesn't want to talk to anyone, and yeah, I, I, just, I think this is this is a quite a light-hearted story for such a serious thing, and even he even goes to a concert in it. And um, well, see, I spent the day in in the stalls listening to Sarasate, I think he is. Um, yes, it's such an inventive story, I think, and it's quite clever with the. With the structure as well, I think. I know you were talking a little bit in the previous podcast about the structure of Scandalin Bohemia and how it's basically a three-act play in 8,000-odd odd words. And I've tried sort of jotting down a, a brief sort of three-act structure for this. And it sort of works, but when you think about it, there's... So, you know, the first act is the consulting room. Um, I suppose, you know, the inciting incident is right at the beginning is is Wilson turning up and then yeah. your plot point is probably Holmes clicking, ah, the man with the acid on his face. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, the start of the, the second act, if you want to look at it that way, they go, he confirms that it's Clay, he 
you know, knocks on the ground, he sees his trousers. And as you say, by that point, he solved it. Everything after that is just, I've got to waste a few hours before he turns up this evening. I might as well go to, the, go to a concert. And if you think about it, the, the confidence that Conan Doyle has got to have in his plotting and his writing to do that, because you then get that whole bit, because um, I know you were talking about when they're in the vault, but even before that, the concert section, there's a, a paragraph or two, isn't there, where Watson is saying, I, I always felt very stupid around Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. He seemed to have figured it out, and I had no idea what was going on. You've got to be so confident as Conan Doyle that during that whole, you know, that second act that's basically a lull, that the reader isn't going to figure it out during that time. You know, the reader's yeah. got to still be on the same page as Watson, because otherwise the last, you know, five or six pages or however long it is are, are a complete bust. Yeah, <laughs> so he's yeah. got to be so confident. Obviously, the fact that he's he's left out the uh, the bank detail helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that'd be quite good. Yeah, I mean, there's no one going to be reading that thing. And hang on, so he's tapped the curb outside. Oh, it must be a tunnel into the bank. Yeah, no, no, no one <laughs> because there's no there's no bank mentioned. Um, and I, I think I think the most fascinating thing for me in this is the fact that he takes the drama away for a second. By, by you know by putting him you know listening to a violin concert, mm. um, and he, he starts waxing lyrical about how he prefers German music to French or Italian. And we go, yeah, yes. get to this man's trousers, please. What was the trousers thing about? Yes, um, I, I think that that's just that is a writer just exercising his craft so well, and, and as absolutely you say, so confidently that it's just. Um, that that takes an incredible amount of ability, I think, to do that to just to drag away from the entire. Um, you know the main thrust of the story, and then to be honest, it doesn't get much dramatic once they. You know, I know he says you know the business at Saxe Coburg Square is a bad one. Uh, there's a chance there's a real serious crime taking place, and then we meet the dullest bank manager in the world. <laughs> it's yeah. brilliant about taking, you know, taking the light away from the centre of the story. Mm. It almost reminds me of you said a minute ago, didn't you? That almost capturing clay is just a a necessary bit of admin at the end. And, and the thing it put me in mind of was, I remember reading in a biography of Alfred Hitchcock a few years ago that he once said in an interview that he hated making films. What he enjoyed was planning the film. Yeah. By the time I got to the actual graft of putting it together, he'd already made it in his head. He knew what it wanted it to look like. So yeah. that was just boring. That was just something necessary. Um, and yeah, that, that's uh, there's a bit of a bit of Holmes in there, I think. <laughs> well, um, um, he was uh, Hitchcock was always keen on the MacGuffin, as he called it, which is the big thing in the middle of the film, which doesn't actually mean anything. Doesn't mean anything. Yes, I want you to yeah. go, go down there because I'm going to drag you somewhere back in a minute. Mm. And that you know, and which I suppose, yeah, if you want a MacGuffin in this, I suppose it's the it's the fact that Wilson's a pawnbroker, isn't it? You know, if you're yeah. trying to. If you're trying to figure this out while reading it, you're going to be concentrating on that, aren't you, and, and thinking about that. And then that turns out to be completely irrelevant. He could have been the, the manufacturer of artificial kneecaps for all the difference it makes to the story. Uh, That's that common in, the thing, in, in quite a few stories where you, you'd think, well, we've only got, you know, when anyone turns up at the consulting room and, and, and says, this has happened, and we've only got their word for it. Yes. So, I know that happens in the very last story. So, you know, the man who goes and, and consults him is the, is the man they, they're actually after. Um, but, um, spoilers, but that's at least two years away, that one, I think. Um, 
So yeah, we've only got his word for it. But uh, I suppose, mind you, I suppose he's got the advert, hasn't he, in the paper? And yes, let's get to the because um, it, it is the of the three redheaded league stories. I think this is the most ingenious one, just because mm. you couldn't. Oh, I agree. Man, um, I love the fact that it doesn't just dupe Javis Wilson; it dupes pretty much every redhead man in London. I love that description. <laughs> yes. Yellow beard and uh, anyone with a with a tiny shade, um, etc. I love that whole process of Pope's Court where. Um, uh, I don't think Pope's Court exists either. I'm not sure. It doesn't. Uh, uh, <laughs> you'd know. Um, you know, and I, I love the whole thing about how he, uh, Duncan Ross, you know, tugs his hair. He says, I see there's water in your eyes. That means everything must be as it should be. Um, I, I think. That's- yeah, I find that bit a bit strange. Um, it's a t- tiny little detail, but these are the kind of things I suspect we're going to get distracted by. <laughs> but yeah, that section, he says that he's been. He has to do that because he's been deceived by paint or wax in the past, as well as wig. Well, I'm not sure that pulling someone's hair would prove anything if it was paint. Yeah. (laughs) Unless he's got wise spirit on his hands. Yeah. Yeah, um, that seemed to me to be unreasonably cruel. So, you know, they know they've already got him. They they know they're already in the... They've got the cellar for four hours. Um every day for the next eight weeks they know that's all fine but let's just we've duped this very calm you know not the brightest man but we've duped him but let's have a bit of violence against him as well yeah yeah Yeah. i think it's a bit of a show for wilson as well to sort of uh, as they say they they don't care that he's redhead or not they know he is that's how they've set it all up but actually that's that's irrelevant that's just a a tool that they are using. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously the whole redheaded league doesn't exist. So it doesn't, I say it's unnecessary. It doesn't matter really whether his hair is really this violent shade of red or not. Um, I think there's a lot of performance in this story. You know, a lot of people who like an audience and a lot of people doing things, not because they need to do them, but because of the impression it makes on the pe- other people who are there. Yeah. And so I think another way you could look at that, I'm sure, yeah, he just enjoys pulling his hair and making his eyes water. But also, I think there's possibly, if you think of the psychology of it, a, a bit of a reassurance to Wilson that, oh, they really are doing this properly. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Better to do that, then that's, uh, that's, that's the, it, it must be serious. Um, mm. I like the fact that Conan Doyle, it's one of those things you don't realise till afterwards just how cruel that was, just to pull his hair for no reason when he could have just said, <laughs> yes, fine, uh, straight away. And and I, I, I like the thing I like most about the, the idea of the red-headed league is obviously it's, it's ingenuity, but it's also just incredibly brave as well. And obviously I know Sherlock says, you know, he's, that he's the, Clay's the fourth bravest man in London or, or, or you know, the most quick-witted. And at the end, of course, he laments the fact that he's, he had to turn to crime in the first place when his mind could be used for, for better things. But mm. um, He's talking I, about himself a little bit there, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. I, always, I always feel with Holmes that there's a sense of... I, th- I think he even says, doesn't he, in one of the stories, if I remember rightly, when someone's being led off, he says, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Um, yeah. And I think he's certainly got an, an idea that if his mind wasn't occupied, he could have gone another route, I think. 
Well, they they um they congratulate each other at the end, and it, it is a genuine sense of a meeting of the minds. They're just on mm. different parts of the track, isn't it? Just, yeah, yeah. No, no, I think it's almost. Uh, you could argue it's almost a sort of proto Moriarty in that way. Yeah. You know, certainly this idea that <clears throat> I know it's something you spoke about a bit last week that you and Neil both really enjoy, and I agree the way Conan Doyle throws in these references to other cases, and some of them you hear about again. Like Mary Sutherland gets mentioned in this one, doesn't she? Yeah. And then turns up in a case of identity next, um, which is why in the collected edition I've got now they've swapped the order of those, which is a bit weird. But uh, but Clay is another one of these where well, there's a whole backstory that you don't hear, isn't there? He's a murderer. He's a this. He's a that. He's a, yeah. is it a safe cracker or something. And and open something in Scotland the next. Yes, exactly. So the, the whole backstory there, Holmes has obviously been aware of him for a while. Obviously, hasn't been able to catch him. Um, and I think there's a little bit of what comes back with Moriarty there in the sense of let's put him up against a, a sort of master criminal who has this this long career and they're gonna the two are gonna collide. Um, yeah. I wonder whether maybe Conan when Conan Doyle came to write in Moriarty, maybe whether whether Clay obviously we'll never know, but whether Clay was on his mind and he thought mm, maybe I'd dispose of that that clever criminal a bit too quickly. <laughs> well, I, I agree completely because, of course, the next story, he brings in Moran. Mm. He brings in Moriarty's right-hand man as if to say, well, no, I still need, I still need a bigwig. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting, um, uh, I forgot his name, the, the, the Norwood Builder, for example, you know, he, he solves quite quickly. Um, Holmes needs people like this. And it's fascinating that it's the second story and he's already yeah. met in the first two stories. I think, I think Case of Identity... Let's say he drops down a few divisions for that one, but um, he's already met someone who's beaten him, and then someone he genuinely admires. And obviously, um, Inspector Jones is very sort of, oh, you know, I've 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 never set eyes on the man, but I've been searching him for, for you know for years. And um, and Holmes says, I'm, I'm, I intend to introduce you to him. But you can also tell that Holmes is just keen to he wants to meet him as well, not in the case of you know I, I, all the way through the story. It, as we say, the capture isn't, it's just the byproduct of the story. He wants to meet him. He wants to congratulate him. He does. Yes. He's a, in a, in a, basically, he's a fan. He's a fan of what John Clay does. And we're Watson, very sort of. Worthy foe, yes. Yeah. Um, we're Watson, sort of like, you know, you've got to, um, uh, you know, you, you've got to get these people off the streets. I think Sherlock feels just a little bit down when he, when he arrests people like this. <laughs> Yes, I wish, I wish I didn't have to. I wish he was a bit cleverer and the chase yeah. could continue for a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mentioned that last week to Neil. Actually, there's a story in the Yellow Case where, um, where, where Holmes says, you know, I'm enjoying this case so much. I just wish it was. I didn't have to end it at some point. And the irony on that case was he actually was completely wrong in what he thought was, was the, the situation was. But the thing, the, the greatest thing about Clay, I think, is is his arrest because. Obviously, because he's only playing a character with Vincent Spaulding, so he's got to be, you know, a little bit sort of, um, he's got to, be, you know, act keen to be an apprentice in pawnbroker in the pawnbroker business yeah. and, and all that sort of stuff. And it's only when he's arrested when the, the pure arrogance of him shines out. And and again, Holmes likes that. He doesn't <laughs> mind drama and you know, take your hands off me and all that stuff. I, I, I just think he's a really, really interesting character. And, he is and, a sale. Uh, Almost dispensed of too soon, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think all that's a bit cruel, to be honest. Um, what a loss! <laughs> what a loss. <laughs> coming on, 
uh, if we could just go back slightly from the, yeah. the vault at the end. Um, I just want to talk a little bit, if we can, I don't just mean me talking, the conversation, um, about the fraud itself and the character of Jabez Wilson. Yeah. Because I find, him, I, I find him a really fascinating character in this as well, and he really is the, the key to the whole thing, because obviously he makes the whole fraud possible. Yeah, and I think I, I think there's actually more depth to him than perhaps you see when you first read it in terms of the way he's, he's drawn. Um, and then I'm also going to come on to possibly going down a complete blind alley and throwing in some social history stuff that came to mind. Right. Because these are the things that happen when you're me. <laughs> so, but Wilson, I don't know how you feel, but he almost gets, I think if anyone gets their comeuppance in this story, you could almost argue it's Wilson more than Clay, because Clay at least gets Sherlock's respect at the end. Yeah. Wilson is uh, just pompous, and he seems really, really proud of himself at the start yeah. that he has presented a unique case. And yeah. It's almost a sort of hubris that that brings him down so low at the end that not only has he been scammed by this ridiculous plot, he wasn't even the target of the plot, and exactly. that's what I like. Yeah, it's like you weren't even you were just a pawn. You weren't even your little pawnbroker's business wasn't even important enough for me to try and rob. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, you, I think we're. If we saw Jabez Wilson again at the end, I think he would be broken by that. <laughs> I find that quite fun. Um, I mean, complete loss that he was never played by Richard Griffiths in an adaptation, because no. that's just a picture immediately. <laughs> yeah. uh, and Holmes and Watson, genuine, uh, they laugh in his face. Yes. They laugh at him. In <laughs> and and they, you know, they apologise, but it's... Um, cause you're, it, it, you're right, it's, it's the way he builds up. He's very sort of, you know, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm this big... Um, this, this pawnbroker, and then bit by bit, he's also let slip that he's he's actually quite poor as well. He genuinely needs that four yes. pounds. Um, and the you know, business isn't going well. And they said there's nothing to do in the mornings. And um, I only got um, Spalding because he came for half wages. And yeah. <laughs> and actually, I'm not that busy anyway because I spend half my time developing photos in the basement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So there's, there's nothing to do, but but again, it's a sort of. Um, there, there is a level of pomposity. In fact, the word Watson uses, in fact, he says something, something pompous and slow. He describes yes. that. Yes. Uh, you know, he a a tall with a sense of importance sort of yeah. description, isn't it? <laughs> and yet he's incredibly likeable. And But but he is just genuinely cast aside at the story. I know they all are because that's Holmes' thing. Once the case ends, he's got no interest in, um, you know, uh, I think he says in, in another story, this might just be the BBC Radio 4 version, when he, he says something, Watson says something like, um, Holmes just used to get lots of telegrams from people inviting him to things because he found out who purloins his grandmother's tiara or something. And he's always, you know, being invited to go to things as a thank you mm. for things. Done. And he's just not interested. <laughs> no, just just bring me a problem. I just want the problem. Yeah. No, he's not, he's not interested in the, in the fame, is he? Um, at all, at least in the original stories, um, where you know, there's even the bit, I, another little detail I quite like in this story, 
And again, bearing in mind it comes in so early and, you know, quite confident again from Conan Doyle to, you know, second story or second short story to start throwing doubt on your narrator. But right at the beginning, when Watson arrives, Holmes says to him, you've, you know, you've been good enough to write up some of my cases. And if I may say so, you've embellished some of them. Yeah. <laughs> He's really not interested. Um, I thought that was quite interesting. That obviously put me in mind of, so the people listening. So a few weeks ago, Carl emceed and I spoke at the East End Conference, um, start of October. And that put me in mind of one of the other talks there, which was Adam's, uh, Mark Ripper's talk on unreliable policemen's memoirs. And in a sense here, what we have is not someone trying to write in their own memoirs and perhaps trying to embellish their own role. We've got, we've got someone who's got actually probably not particularly interested in being memorialized. And it's the, the person that's uh, memorialized in them that's sort of fallen so in love with their myth <laughs> Yeah, perhaps some of what we're hearing is a, a little bit over the top. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's what the, the, particularly the um, that's amazing. Holmes, how did you know he was in China? All that sort of stuff. And yeah, uh, well, they're interesting, aren't they? Those deductions. So again, like I was saying, I think there's a lot of performance in this story. And, uh, and I know you, you said, didn't you? You said in the, the sort of brief show notes that you sent out that as you just said as well, the first example of deductions. Now, obviously, Scandal Bohemian, we've got a little bit with Watson being married and we've I mean, yeah. on seven, a, a trifle more pounds. Um, but those deductions, you're right, it's the first time we get the, the bravura, now I'm going to look at this person and tell him. I just feel that's completely for Watson's benefit. Yeah. I think he's been waiting for Watson to turn up. God knows how long Wilson's been there. <laughs> I think he's been waiting for his little showpiece there. Um, but what I find interesting about that as well is when you actually look at it, uh, probably half of those deductions aren't actually that impressive. No, you know, it, the Freemasonry, how do you know that Holmes or how do you know that Sherlock? So I think it's actually Wilson that asks that, isn't it? But you know, the answer is just, you've got, you're wearing the tie pin. Yeah. It's actually that impressive. Um, it's all back to, Scandal behavior, isn't it? It's you know, there's nothing that impressive about knowing how many stairs there up to the are up to the flat. What's yeah. impressive is taking the time to notice it. And I think that's quite fun. You see, I observe. I exactly. Yeah. But you're not observing now, anything. Good. Let me go down a blind alley. Go on, so, <laughs> um, when Holmes and Wilson are talking about uh, Spalding slash Clay, still Spalding at that point. Yeah. So far as uh, the reader knows, um, who's this, yeah, this sort of assistant slash apprentice role who's working for half wages, quite happy to. Um, and then Holmes says, uh, what is it? What is the name of this obliging youth? Um, and Wilson says, oh, he's, he's not such a youth either. So immediately, obviously, the idea of this is to make Holmes and you know, the reader, if they're paying attention, a little bit suspicious to, well, hang on, I could. I could expect that maybe if he was young and learning the trade, he might be prepared to do that. But why is he still hanging around and doing that work? Surely he could get more, make you a bit suspicious of him. Um, but also, um, where are we? So there's a quote here that I've written down from Wilson. Not such a youth either. either. Then I'll dot, dot, dot. Um, if he's satisfied, why should I put ideas in his head? Um, and Holmes says, why indeed? Um, 
not a common experience among employees in this age. Um, so, I mean, in this age, I think is a three words that are doing a bit of work there. Yeah. You know, you can hear, you can imagine someone in the pub saying that now, can't you? Oh, these days, you're lucky to get a good worker these days. Um, and what it tends to mean is, you know, it was better when people knew their place, usually when people say stuff like that, isn't it? And when you look at it, you know, and again, this is what I love about the fact, the implied sort of psychological downfall of, of Jabez Wilson. He's He is at least thinks he is. He's exploiting Vincent Spaulding. Yeah. As far yeah. as he knows, actually, he gets his comeuppance because he's been exploited himself. Yeah. And that's what I love about that. Um, but the, I just thought I'd dig into that in this age a little bit because that jumped out at me. And so this is being written in 1890, isn't it? Now, I admit I have no idea what kind of sympathies, if any, Arthur Conan Doyle had with the Labour movement. I suspect probably not too many. Um, but nonetheless, you know, when anyone says in this age or nowadays, there's an implied knowledge that the other side of that conversation knows what you're referring to, isn't there? Yeah. And I think yeah. when you consider we've just had the three years, 88, 89 and 90, when the story is written, um, you know, we've had the Match Girls strike in 1888. We've had the London Dock strike in 1889, and then the failed Southampton Dock strike in 1890. I just feel there's a little bit of that playing in a no, sense of all, right. you know, yeah, exactly. And the kind of businessman that Wilson is would be thinking, "Oh, these workers are getting a bit uppity." Um, what's the line in the new? Uh, the, the Downton Abbey film when someone asks uh, the uh, Maggie Smith's character, "Did the general strike affect you?" and she says, "Well, my maid is a communist and she's been a bit, a bit, uh, a bit miserable." <laughs> What's that effect? It feels a little bit like that. that yeah. And he thinks that Holmes is going to agree with him. You know, oh yes, it's such so good if you can get someone cheap. And Holmes, like you say, you picture him just sort of sitting there nodding, going, "Oh yes," and humouring him. Um, I think there's a, a little bit of that playing in. And then if you start thinking down that route, you come to the conclusion that it's probably not a coincidence that Conan Doyle makes him a pawnbroker. Yeah. You know, this is someone who is preying on people's they needs. Um, exactly. So this is a sort of predatory uber capitalist, if you think about it. Yeah. Um, and he's being played by someone who he probably thought the moment he set eyes on him, well, I'll always be his superior. Yeah. Because he didn't know he had royal blood, did he? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which again makes it even, that, that's what I said before, when it comes back to uh, the, the difference in characters between Spaulding and Clay, even though it's the same person, he really lets himself, uh, you know, come out and say, you know, no, I, I am superior to everybody else. So it would have been quite amusing to see the exchanges between Spaulding and, and Wilson Knowing that you know he doesn't like people, he doesn't like police officers touching him because they're not royal like he is. Yes. Uh, so the other side of that is, yeah, you know, you, you're being superior, but I really am superior to you, even though they're not, obviously, particularly. Um, that, I think that's a, that's a really interesting way of looking at it because they're also playing on the fact that you know he's a widow and um, he's had staff in the past, which is for some reason he's keen to point out. You know, I yes. have distance because because I'm doing really well, Mister Holmes, aren't I? Except. Um, Except I'm very obviously not, um, which is why I've got Spalding coming in. I think that's an interesting take on um, on on just how 
1890 would have been around that time. It's obviously, it's very easy to sort of frame the entire Victorian era mm. into just, you know, the 60 odd years that it was or whatever, 40 years um, in just to just one area. But, you know, 1890, it was, it was pretty, it, the labor movement was starting there. Again, you mentioned the conference and, uh, you know, Dr. Louise Raw spoke at that conference about the match girl strike. And, exactly. Uh, yeah. And how even even the, that strike was glorified to one person who didn't have much to do with it because they were of slightly higher station in life rather than the match girls themselves. Um, and and uh, Louise said how you know she wanted to rip down a statue because it's the wrong person. It was someone slightly higher up who, as I say, had nothing to do with it. So even then, the history was being rewritten as a sort of um, if there's changes to be made, it's to be made by the better people in society, not mm. you little people. The people who yeah, think they're better, like Jabez Wilson. <laughs> That's yeah. just the way I look at it, you know. And uh, I do, I, th I think those, as I say, what Conan Doyle's thoughts were on all the changes around that time, I really wouldn't like to guess. But I think those three words in this age, there's, there's a lot that's unsaid that Wilson expects Holmes to interpret from that, definitely. And, and the readers at the time obviously would have understood. They would have been the kind of conversations they would have been hearing, you know, in the pub, in the street. Um, you know, or in this age, um, and just a little bit of context that maybe we've lost a bit now, because, like you say, we just think that the Victorian era was, you know, the same in eighteen forty as it was in, yeah, nineteen hundred. Yeah, yeah, just a homogenous mass of, you know, people walking around with top hats and a bit of poverty on the side. You know, when it's hard to pinpoint the time when times were changing, but it probably is around here, about mm. eighteen ninety, um, which, which is a. You know, a very interesting time because it, it does Holmes does tend to sympathise as well with the lower orders. Um, I'm thinking of the Golden Pans Nay, where he's where he's incredibly kind to um, uh, to, to the maid, and the reason obviously mm. the answer is because she knows more than you know the, the the head of the household knows, so that's why he's kind. There's no there's, there's no you know um, altruism involved or anything like that. It's just purely because if I if I'm nice to you, you're going to tell me what I want. Whereas I mean, in the first story, you know, he, he's happy to talk down to the King of Bohemia while at the same time praising an opera singer. So I, I think, again, for Holmes, I think it's more the case of it's the interest in the story rather than, you know, of the case rather than uh, the actual um, the hierarchical nature of, of the people he wants to please. Although he, he, he isn't he invited to the palace at the end of Scandal of Bohemia or something. Yes. Yes. Uh, so maybe that's Which Watson loves, by the way. Watson's all about that. Watson's all about empire. He loves that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What, what, Watson is a, a good Brit, I think we can safely say. Yeah. Good and, army uh, man. Yeah, and he's, um, you know, he's, he's interested in you know, what's going on in the house and things like that. What Watson's interested in this story because, uh, as I said to Neil last week, um, Scandal and Bohemia is the first time when Watson stops being a narrator and starts taking part. So, you know, um, he... He, he basically risks his life in this story. I mean, obviously, he doesn't know he's risking his life because Holmes hasn't bothered to tell him. You <laughs> <laughs> no. just bring your revolver as well. Uh, yeah, okay, fine. Why am I bringing my revolver to a bank vault? <laughs> um, but yeah, he, but he does it anyway. And, and you're, you're right. I like the, the open a bit where um, Holmes just has a little dig at him occasionally. And I, I think as, as, as these stories progress, Watson becomes more of the character rather than just the man with the pen in his hand. Definitely. Yeah. Rather than just a device to get the story on the page. Yeah. yeah. 
What do you actually think? What What's your feeling on the relationship or the implied relationship, at least at this point in the stories, between Holmes and Watson? I, I don't mean all the slightly out there theories we've had over the years, um, yeah. reading too much into things. But to me, and again, this comes back to the fact that these all the deductions are done for Watson's benefit. I, it's the way I read it, certainly. Um, and I, I just wonder whether... I'm not entirely sure that we're only supposed to see that as Holmes showing off. I think at this point in the stories, it's, does it almost feel to you a bit like a... Well, it's come back to Spalding, I suppose, but a bit like an apprentice relationship. Like yeah. actually trying to trying to teach him through. And I was thinking about that the other day when, when making some notes for this, that... You know, if, if the Holmes stories were being written for the first time today, you know, say for, for telly, I absolutely guarantee you that we probably wouldn't have had, and may have been for the best, but we, we wouldn't have had the post Reichenbach Falls stories. What we would have had was then the new series, you know, the Lewis to the Morse. We would yeah. have had Watson with his friend writing up the stories that he's teaching. The page boy. As Watson. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there is a there is a bit of that as well, and there's there's also um, uh, I, I like it when he says like you know I, I intend to sit in this chair for fifty minutes, um, and you can't interrupt me. As in that that is literally look look I'm working now. The master is at play here. You're just going to sit there and be Watson for a bit while I do. Yes. But but the good thing is you get to watch. You get to watch me solve all these things, and and there is. Um, an element of, uh, well, for example, when he when he goes to the to, to the pawnbrokers and you know taps his stick on the pavement outside, he deliberately doesn't tell Watson why. He wants no. him to work it out for himself. So there is an element yes. of that. Yeah, so it's like you know, do you know what it is? Yeah, you've just and, and Watson says obviously you know I've seen the same things he's seen, and yeah, he's got it all wrapped up in his head. And I've got I'm clueless as to what's going on because obviously because he's not Holmes. Um, it's yeah, not just because it's not Holmes, though, is it? It's, it's, it's a tiny bit unfair when you think about it because yeah. you know, he's not figured it out because he doesn't know that it, it just there's someone like, called John Clay who's got an acid stain on his face. Yeah. So it's not giving him all the information, to be fair. You know, with an acid stain and earrings. Oh, uh, yeah. no one. Okay. But then, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a huge element of that, isn't it? Because there's... He does it in, in all the later stories as well. And he says, Sur surely you must have formed some ideas yourself, Doctor. And he knows <laughs> full well he hasn't. <laughs> yes. Hasn't. Yeah. I almost think he'd be quite pleased if he did one day. Yeah. Yeah. Too well. yeah. Sort of karate kids. You, you realise, of course, uh, um, Holmes that it's Stapleton who's behind the whole basketball thing. Uh, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so that's not going to happen. Yeah. Or, or, him, or, or him say, yeah, I know you didn't die at the uh, Reichenbach Falls because I saw there was a tiny little ledge beforehand and you would have probably got down there and then nipped off to, you know, Tibet or wherever he was you went to. That's never going to happen. Um, I, don't th I think at this stage, I I'm always keen to see where they are in their friendship because um, the timeline is obviously skewed all over the place. And, the, and it is particularly with this one where they talk about, um, he refers to the story being in the autumn and then suddenly it's it's in April, and then in, in then it's yeah the, the, yeah the morning chronicle club that down there yeah twenty seventh of April, and then he says two months ago, and then the 
the notice that says the league is dissolved that is apparently picked up from the office that morning is the 9th of October, yeah. yeah. Uh, so he's, uh, I love the fact that um, people like Dorothy Sayers have, um, have said, oh yeah, I think we've worked out what he means by that. No, we've just it, that's just sloppy writing. That's all it yeah. is. It just wasn't paying attention. <laughs> no, and, I, and I, I, I'll be talking about this on a weekly thing, things that Conanville got wrong. and That's always going to be from a position of um, affection rather than, oh God, that's bad. Well, because I can't do that, because he's just written the Red-Headed League, which is amazing. It's an incredible story. Um, but I, I do like it when he occasionally just gets a bit sloppy. I mean, I'm going to come to the man with the twisted lip in a few weeks where uh, uh, yes. <laughs> Mary calls him James instead of John. Yes. Um, and my favourite thing ever, I might mention this weekly, is, um, do you know what Moriarty's, James Moriarty's brother's called? He's Not called James. James. Ah. James. <laughs> He just can't be bothered. Conan Doyle just can't be bothered. And yeah. So I never know where they are in their friendship because he, he basically just throws a gear in. And so sometime in 87, you know, or something like that. And they get very, very close later on, but they're a little bit distant at this point too. I mentioned to Neil last week about how he says to Watson, have you got any problems with breaking the law? And he says, no problem at all, straight away. So you assume they're close there. He trusts Holmes. Yeah. Well, Yes, yeah, I'll do it for you, isn't it? I think is what he's saying there, rather than just I do. I, of course, I'll do it. It's like if you need me to do it, Holmes. I, I know it needs to be done. Yeah, I agree. I think that's what's really been said there. Yeah. Um, so I think it's always interesting to think, you know, just where, where exactly they are, and I think you can you can normally tell just by how surprised Watson is by the deductions. Because I'm sure a bit later on he gets a little bit sort of, oh yeah, he's worked that out. Yeah, right. doing this again. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, he's doing that again, and he you know, gets a bit annoyed that you know that they have the big arguments about love, and they have the big arguments about um, the putting an elopement into the fifth proper proposition of Euclid. Yes, <laughs> where Watson just on the sixth of him slagging me off now, and you can tell at <laughs> that stage, and he's he's on his way here, I think, because you know there are, there are little digs. Um, one thing we should talk about, Trevor, before we uh, before we wrap up is where is the story set? On the subject of things Conan Doyle got wrong, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, yes, where is it set? Um, yeah, it's, it's an odd one, isn't it? I mean, I came across this quote the other day when I was working. Uh, again, it is fairly well known. Um, so I'm sure you've come across it. But when I was working on some notes for this, I mean, I'm going to go into this, Carl. I've drawn a diagram, okay? okay. Be prepared. Um, <laughs> but there's a, a letter... Um, Conan Doyle to his publisher around the sign of four era where he actually says it must amuse you to see the vast and accurate knowledge of London I display I worked it all out from a post office map and you know of course if you look at Conan Doyle's biography he's not been in London for very long at that time um, I think by the time he's writing Red-Headed League and Scandal in Bohemia I think he's still working in the ophthalmology yeah. um clinic somewhere in bloomsbury he's not been in london that long has he it's not it's not you know i'm sure his knowledge of edinburgh even at the end of his career was probably a lot better than his, his knowledge of london um and i think you know again with all affection in the world for conan doyle i think there's a little bit of hubris in there you know the vast and accurate knowledge and i worked it all out from a post office map yeah i think we can probably tell that arthur <laughs> um because yeah so what we have, just to give the listeners a quick run-through, as Carl mentioned earlier, so the offices of the Red-Headed League, you know, various air quotes involved in there, 
Um, but the offices are in Pope's Court, which does not exist, but we're told it's off Fleet Street, which obviously does. Um, and then Saxe Coburg Square, where the pawnbrokers is, that is, again, is fictional. There's been various suggestions over the years. Um, and then on the two different trips, they take two different methods of transport to get there. So the time <coughs> when Holmes and Watson go and there's the knocking on the ground and they see Spalding's trousers, they go via the underground and they go to Aldersgate Street Station, which is now Barbican Station. Um, and then the second time they get a cab. And as Carl said, they go as far as Farringdon Street and yeah. then walk from there. Um, and then the other, only other location you've got is the uh, 17 King Edward Street, which is the forwarding address that yeah. uh, Dun yeah. Duncan Ross, again in quotes, has given, which turns out to be the manufacturer of artificial uh, kneecaps. That's real. Um, that's yeah. down by Postman's Park and Museum of London. But as for exactly where Pope's Court and Saxe Coburg Square are, it's a complete mystery, isn't it? So I know you're quite keen on it being in Farringdon, Carl. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, let me try and explain my diagram to the listener. <laughs> Dear listener, get yourself a piece of paper and a pen. Um, if you imagine a, a rectangle, um, so the longer sides are the uh, verticals. So you've got this is this area is basically three quarters of a mile up the vertical and about half a mile along the horizontal. And what you've basically got there in the almost the top right hand. So that line going down the side on the right near the top of that, that is Aldersgate Street. And pretty much in that top corner is where you've got Barbican Station, which was Aldersgate at the time. And yep. then Farringdon Street is the southern end, or the southern sort of three quarters of the line right over on the left. And Fleet Street carries on, if you carry on your bottom line to the left, that then carries on into Fleet Street. So the Farringdon Street side of things sort of makes sense, yeah. and that would place us in the, you know, if you were to divide that rectangle, I told you it was going to get complicated. If you're going to divide that into sort of four quarters, that would put us in that bottom left, you know, southwestern corner, which is basically Blackfriars. And that is sort of walkable because what really throws it is when Holmes is ruse to, uh, to speak to Spalding slash Clay and identify him is to ask yep. him how to get to the Strand, isn't it? And it says, you know... Yeah, th third left and first right or something. I think it's now, third now, right fourth left. That's it, yeah. Now, there's absolutely no way, because yeah. if you're anywhere up near Aldersgate Street Station slash Barkham Station in that top right-hand corner, which is, for example, where Charterhouse Square is, which some people have suggested over the years, yeah. there is no way if you're up there that it's only going to be four turnings of any combination you wish to yeah, get all the way down to the Fleet Street and the Strand. Yeah, I mean, you could be facing the exact right way and you wouldn't get there. The only thing I could think of is maybe that's the directions to the tube, which might take them to Aldwych. But, you know, <laughs> that's about as close as you're going to get. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's more likely we're down in that bottom left-hand corner where you could just about get to Fleet Street and the Strand in a few turns. And we're actually nearer the southern end of um, Farringdon Street, nearer to Blackfriars Station 
than we are to Farringdon, which is just north of that, and certainly nowhere near nowhere near Charterhouse Square. That's that's far too far away. Um, the tube is an interesting point. That was the only thing that came to mind for me. But then I sort of I briefly had a theory, and then I ruined it for myself. Um, <clears throat> but because I say the first time, so the first time Holmes and Watson go to Saxe Coburg Square, they go on the train. The second time they get a cab. Now common sense would tell you that if you are doing two journeys to the same place, one in the train, one in the cab, the chances are you'll go a more direct route on in the cab. Yeah. So again, I tend to put a little, so much as any of this matters, you know, none of it happened. I realise that. Yeah. Um, but also, didn't care where anything was because he... No, not at all. Not at all, I don't think. But, you know, if, we, if we're going to dive deep into it for a second, I think you have to take the cab journey directions as probably more accurate and assume that they've done a bit of a walk from the tube station that Watson just hasn't bothered to tell you about. Um, and at one point I thought, yes, because they've come down on what we would now know as the Metropolitan Line from Baker Street to Aldersgate, and that must just be the nearest station to where they wanted to go. Yeah. Because Chancery Lane is an open, Blackfriars is an open, Hoban is an open. And then I realised, of course, Farringdon's there, isn't it? <laughs> Farringdon Street station's been open for about 25 years by that point. So that would have been the nearest one. But again, I think, you know, Conan Doyle might have had a, a good copy of the post office directory to do his London stuff. I'm not sure he consulted a tube map too often. So maybe he just got that wrong. And he thought that Aldersgate Street station would have been the nearest one. Um, but I think we're, we're some way away from there. We've, we've got to be. Um, really, yeah, like, you can get from Barbican to the Strand, third, right, fourth, left. No way. No. <laughs> you wouldn't even. You wouldn't even get some pools that time. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the closest you'll get might be the corner of Fleet Street. Might be. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, it might be ideal for Pope's Court for all that reason. I don't know. Uh, there's also the fact that, of course, Clay might just be lying just to annoy him. Yeah, well, I did wonder that, and I did wonder whether Holmes, I, that did cross my mind, that actually, are we supposed to take that so literally? Because, you know, Holmes also says in this story, which, you know, sounds a, quite a lot like Conan Doyle in that letter, um, I think it's the author coming through, but he says to Watson, doesn't he, I make it a habit to have an exact knowledge of London. And so you would think that he would know if it is anywhere too far away that those directions are false. Maybe, yeah. although he doesn't tell us, because maybe Watson hasn't figured it out. Um, maybe, may, yeah, maybe Spalding Clay is just telling him nonsense to get rid of him. Yeah. Holmes might even know that he's he doesn't actually want directions. No. So maybe Holmes knows he's lying. And that's what makes him think, you know, bump him up a list in the cleverest men in London. So he thinks he's, so, he's, he's clever because that's a good idea. He's, he's made it. You know, so I know that he doesn't know where he is, so I don't ask him any more questions. Yeah. Maybe they're both bluffing each other. <laughs> and I've got to get down and do some more digging. Yes. Okay. Just, just go away. Yeah, I was over there. Maybe we're confusing ourselves by taking the, the three lefts and the two rights or whatever too literally. Yeah. But, uh, but certainly Aldersgate Street Station and Farrington Street are a fair distance apart, which I find odd. I don't think it's a shame cause, about the tube because uh, I think it's one of the missed opportunities of the stories, because they don't come up much, do they? You know, you've got Allgate in the Bruce Parton plans, and then three um, Garrett Deb, so they get on a train at one point, maybe? Uh, I'm not sure he does. Um, so, uh, there's, there's Foster Road in the Bruce Parton plans as well, that's where the, the bodies put on the yes. train. 
and uh, yeah, it falls off. Yeah. Um, but, but it doesn't come up that much, does it? It's not that much of a character in the stories. It's much yeah. more, you know, handsome cabs. Um, and I think it's a shame because, you know, if, if I suspect Conan Doyle wasn't that interested in the, in the, in the underground, unfortunately, but I think Holmes really would have been. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think Holmes would have had great fun with the tube. I almost imagine, you know, I think uh, I can imagine Holmes being like some of the people that you get doing, you know, blogs and YouTube videos these days about about the underground. He'd be one of those people who is who would be really enjoy himself telling you, oh no, if it's quicker if if you get off here and walk down there and then go down the the entrance to the Bakerloo line and all along the platform, you get to the end of the Northern line quicker because the train comes in at that end and yeah, all, the, all the little intricacies and tricks. I would have loved that. I, I like the, the um, uh, I used to work at a uh, Farringdon and uh, when I worked at the Guardian and I had to go to get the train to Cannon Street from, um, from South East London. And um, the amount of times I saw people, uh, people who did that, um, journey would would get on and, and then get onto the circle line at um old gate or something i think well literally if you just cross the road you're in bank and you know <laughs> and then oh like, yeah yeah part thing as well it's actually it's, close, it's quicker to change the entire um rather than go around a certain way if you just cross the road you're in holland park and that takes you like 15 minutes slower faster to get to one place to the other um i really yeah. like those, those uh, secrets of the underground thing. yeah and i think i think holmes would have had you know, would have written several books on them. I think if he, uh, yeah. if his author had let him, he also know exactly where the platform was beneath his feet at the pavement level. He knows yes. that because that's his job. That's his, as I always say, you know, this is my business to know these things. Um, yes. Yeah. But again, that just told me that like Conan Doyle got cabs everywhere or walked. He wasn't interested in the tube. No, I think that's right. It is a lot. Chip the doctor. Well, Trevor, we've done an hour. Um, okay. I want to get your go back to your day. Um, Chronicles tours. Uh, one thing I will say is, if you want to look up uh, and do one of Trevor's tours, uh, it's at Chronicles plural tours. And the reason I say that is because if you go to Chronicle tours, you end up doing Safari in Kenya. Because I do. I very nearly added them in the promotional tweet for this. And um, I had one. Of, I had one of their reviews turned up on TripAdvisor once. Really? Okay. Did yeah. You know? I, I, I mean, it was a good review, but I thought I should probably let them know, let TripAdvisor know, because, you know, I might get done for false advertising if people turn yeah. up and say, well, I thought we were going to see rhinos. Yeah, it does, yeah. So, so check out the tours of Bank, the city, and uh, Nairobi. Uh, yep, I'm off to, <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, off to do a, a Shakespeare tour in about an hour now, just around the corner in Barra. Excellent. Um, yeah. I'm trying not to introduce football to these podcasts, but uh, I'm off to quite an important football match this afternoon. So uh, that's why I'm in Liverpool when I'm recording at the moment. But Trevor Bond, thank you so much for, for doing the podcast. Um, no, not thanks for having me on. It's been good. You've got a lot of stories to get through. So if you run out of guests, feel free to invite me again. Well, I was going to say, I asked Neil this question last week. You've done a story you really like. Would you like to come on at some point to do a story that you don't like? Yes. Yeah. We'll be one of the later ones. <laughs> Definitely. Brilliant. Trevor, thank you so much. No, thanks, Carl. And cheers. I would like to thank our hosts at Rippercast, as well as producers Jonathan Mengus and John Reese. A special thank you too to Andrew Firth, who created both the graphics and the theme music. 
you can contact us on Twitter at Adler to Amberley. Thank you for listening. <laughs>